0: Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us, as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is sponsored by Happy Fox Health, a natural supplement brand focused on sea moss, a marine algae that has 92 out of 102 essential nutrients that your body needs to thrive and regenerate. I've used a number of their products and found it's really given me clarity of mind. Visit happyfoxhealth.com and use promo code THECRAFT for an exclusive 15 to 20% discount off your first product purchase. Mark George possesses an original perspective someone with the ability to look at the world and spaces in it with a non-conformist eye. The longtime designer and furniture maker recently founded August Studios, an East Vancouver building for artists, designers, and makers to work, learn, and collaborate. Born in Miami, his family moved to Seattle when he was 10 years old. His bank consultant father was battling leukemia, and the city had a cancer research hospital with a necessary treatment. His father's search for new bone marrow became a national story on Oprah, Geraldo, and 60 Minutes. At the time, only blood-relative bone marrow transplants were allowed, and he had been adopted. With the help of a voice analyst consultant for the FBI, an extended search, and a subsequent lost court case, eventually a donor from Sweden was found a decade later. For cancer recovery, the family relocated to Vermont, where they lived a simple and idyllic life in the middle of the woods. Mark went to school in New York for fine arts, sculpting, and painting. He then spent some time in Philadelphia before winding up in Vancouver for his Masters in Architecture at UBC. During his career, he focused on modern architectural design and worked on projects with a number of architects, artists, and institutions. In this conversation, we imagine being a witness to his father's cancer journey growing up and recently learning about his father's autism, how he learned to deconstruct systems and how it's influenced his work, how he constantly sees shapes in everything and relates them to places on his body, his experience-based approach to designing spaces and objects, his woodworking classes based on the late Enzo Mari's open furniture design concept, what fascinates him about how his daughter operates in the world and much more. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with a spatially brilliant, observant, and introspective Mark George. Mark George. Hello. Welcome to The Craft.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here, May.
0: Thank you for being here. We're new friends. Mm -hmm. Yes, we met several months ago when my friend Eric Veloso still had his office, his Street Dreams Vancouver office, in one of the buildings that you were operating out of. And he was like, you need to meet Mark. He's really cool. He does this furniture. And so that's where we met. And I was like, oh, yeah. He's very interesting.
1: Eric's a good cheerleader. He is a very good cheerleader.
0: Yeah yeah Yeah. well let's go back in time. So you're American by birth and for all of your childhood and into your teens you were born in Miami. That's right. Yeah tell me about it.
1: I was born in Miami, lived there until I was about 10 Um, and then when I was 10, roughly 10, I can't keep track of these things. We moved to Seattle because my father had leukemia and there was a cancer research hospital in Seattle that could specialize, that was specializing in the type of treatment he needed. Um, So we spent some time in Seattle and then for his recovery we moved to Vermont when I was a teen and spent my high school teen years in Vermont slash New Hampshire. And then Went on to art school in New York City. Mm.
0: Tell me about being, um, having your childhood in Vermont. Because I I feel like whenever I hear about it, I think of a very idyllic place.
1: It's, we were literally in the middle of the woods. We had two wood burning stoves for our heat. There was, I don't think the walls were insulated, probably, the single pane glass. It was very, very cold in the winter. Um, But we had like a pond with a waterfall, and it was. It was very idyllic, and it was very much the opposite of what Miami had been, which was very hot climate and dirty and just kind of gross. I mean, the beaches are beautiful. The rest of it's kind of a strip mall. Um, So it's got, you know, some idyllic locations, but a lot of the time you're just overheated in a car. Mm. Um, So Vermont was very much the opposite, which is why we went there, because you needed a very safe, clean depopulated environment because his immune system was very compromised so we became very isolated Mm
0: -hmm. tell me about your parents tell me about your mom and tell me about your dad what what are what are they like
1: uh well my father's recently in he turned about 60 was diagnosed with autism which we didn't which we had never attributed which we had never known growing up so um It was he was always different, but we never we never pathologized it. We never had a system to manage that relationship. Like, how do you how do you have an autistic father and what are those relationships? How are those relationships affected? But he's very, very intelligent, like really high IQ, which made him really interesting to talk to. And we loved puzzles and kind of understanding how the world worked. Um, So that was that was the good. That was great. he worked as a bank consultant and knew how to rob a bank. Um, so I learned all these stories about like how to literally rob a bank and how to forge signatures or um, all kinds of stuff. So I re- that was like fun. I liked learning about how to kind of sneak through, like deconstruct a system and take it apart and find ways to manipulate it, um, kind of like a puzzle. Um, and I think that's something that's always stuck with me. Um, that I got from him for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: If I remember too, when we were having our last chat, as well, and you were talking about your dad's bone marrow transplant, um, you were saying that because he has had a donor, that the blood that would right. create—yeah, I'd love right. for you to talk about that because I was right. so fascinated.
1: So, my dad was adopted, um, and he was diagnosed with leukemia, which is bone marrow, which is a um, cancer of the blood. And when I was a kid, they were trying to get his birth records released because they could only do a blood-related bone marrow transplant. Your, your bone marrow is what makes your blood. So if they swap out your bone marrow, but a new bone marrow, your blood will be cancer-free. That's the idea, if your body doesn't reject it. So they could only do this from donors that were blood relatives at the time. So he went to court to get his birth records released. Um, this went on for a number of years. His life expectancy was always... Like imminent, like it could be any day, it could be three years, but it wasn't very long. Um, so this court case was very important, and in the '80s, identity politics and rights for adopted children were very hot topic. Um, and he wound up on Oprah and Geraldo, and 60 Minutes was doing an ongoing special about him. Um, he had book offers, movie offers. it's quite a big deal, um, and it went on for a number of years with the court case and then at one point his mother came forward identified recognized herself and agreed to an interview on 60 minutes the 60 minutes blanked out her face like shadowed it out but they didn't distort her voice the next day and she explained i don't want to i don't want to be a part of i don't want to help i can't help it would ruin my family we're very religious we can't i'm not going to come out and be i'm not going to participate the next day, my father gets a phone call from a guy who's a voice analyst, consultant for the FBI. And the guy said, based on her voice, she lives within 50 miles of this town in Oklahoma. Now, that was, you know, it's surprising, um, but it allowed them to narrow down. They they used it to narrow down their search a little bit. And eventually, a social service worker released, leaked some information to my dad, um, totally under the table, not legitimate, and she was in the town that that guy had identified. Um, so they found out his mother's name through the social service leak, but that was it just her, just her name, no address. I guess there was that was about it. Um, but they managed to contact her through a lawyer, and then my mother somehow got a hold of her phone number and would call her up and say, pretend to be a friend and try to get her to mention other relatives' names in the conversation. Anything to make more connections to somebody that might be able to donate um, or be willing to donate. Um, but it didn't work out, nothing happened, and he lost the court case. So it kind of, that was it. They had no other recourse and we just went on with our lives. and. Medicine kind of kept changing, and he didn't die, so the media kind of lost interest in him. He wasn't a martyr, um, so we just kind of lived with it for another ten years or so, and then ten years later, they could do a non-blood relative transplant. So he met he they found somebody who matched a matching donor that was in Sweden, I believe, or Switzerland, and on a military base. And a psychic my mother had gone to years before had said that there was going to be somebody blonde and in the military that was going to somehow be related to this. So she took that um, as a sign, you know, something. My parents are very, you could say, very binary. My father is very analytical, very mathematical, great memory. My mother is very intuitive, much more creative. Like, they're two very archetype personalities, mm-hmm. um, contrasting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like I'm sort of a hybrid of those two. I got a lot of my artistic side from my mother. She was always refurbishing furniture, renovating houses, um, painting on furniture, just very free-spirited and open. And my father was very technical and knew how to he could build things, but he was an analyst and a... Um, engineering type Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: so I'm somewhere some sort of amalgamation of the two having gone on to fine art and then architecture yeah
0: yeah and I think it's so interesting um that someone's body can produce especially with the transplant that it could produce blood that doesn't match the DNA of the other parts of your body oh yes yes so
1: (laughs) (laughs) so eventually they did find this donor and the donor was a different blood type than my father, but that wasn't the most that wasn't the most critical thing. So my father actually changed. So your blood, your bone marrow is what produces your blood. It was somebody else's bone marrow, so it actually changed his blood type. Um, but additionally, the blood is produced on the DNA of the bone marrow. So and the bone marrow is a different DNA. So his blood is actually a different DNA as well as a different blood type than the rest of his body. So he's got these two sets of DNA, if you take a tissue sample, it's different than a blood sample. Um, which I, and then he works as an identity theft consultant and he's adopted, so he's born with one name as another name, he legally changed his name. So there's all this like mashing up of like who a person is, um, which I grew up with and I think is really affects the way that I perceive the world and the way that I make art and yeah. Yeah, has been I'm a big influence, I think.
0: Sure, yeah, huge influence. I mean, so much in your childhood shapes who you are and, and how you, you think and see the world for, for better or for worse, right? Um, but I'd love to know about you and what you were like as a, a child and also, yeah, where your obviously your artistic sensibilities come from your, your mom, but yeah, I'd love to know what that looked like for you as a child.
1: Um, I mean, I was drawing all the time. I would sit in the hallway and draw. I would draw present, make drawings as presents. I really grew up very visually inclined and um, using it as a way to document the world around me. I wasn't very creative, like I didn't make images up out of my head. It was always a rather passive observation, um, which I think continues today. I try to be rather passive in the work that I do and allow things to happen through a series of processes, rather than starting out with an idea and resolving it. Mm.
0: Um, Yeah, were you introverted, shy?
1: Oh, yeah, I was, I was very, I think I was an anxious child. And once my father was in the hospital, it was a lot of alone time and walking around a hospital, um, you know, surrounded by people going through trauma, having our own trauma, seeing my father, like, behind a plastic screen with his hair being shaved, like I shaved his head when he's going through chemo and radiation. So there's a lot of trauma for a couple years. Um, I think I started developing some OCD characteristics. Um, I would notice these embedded brass lines in the concrete floor of the hospital and I would just walk around the hospital, like tracing these lines with my eyes and kind of Yeah. I would just like look down. I didn't want to make eye contact with people and I would just sort of notice the geometry around me. And that's the earliest recollection I have of that, but it's continued for the rest of my life. I do it constantly. I'm doing it right now. Like, um, I see patterns in floors and in text in everything, the curb car wheels, your eyebrows, your hairline, your shirt. Um, and I'm constantly tracing these things with and sort of relating them to my own body in some way whether it's the curve of my teeth or the curve of my forearm or the distance between my shoulders it's like an on, it's like a constant thing mm-hmm. and i think it's related it i've recently my father was recently diagnosed as autistic so i've started questioning whether my some of these characteristics are autism in myself and um I suspect there is some some degree of that I've taken some self-reported testing that says I'm most likely on the spectrum Mm. Um, and then my mother's ADHD and Mm -hmm. it's always been part of our life knowing that being aware of what ADHD behavior was like so I'm kind of like full of all these acronyms and and it's always been part of my life but yeah
0: yeah and uh I'm just curious to know you're like saying I'm full of these acronyms. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Like is is it something that makes you feel like afraid or like kind of an other or for you it's just that's who I am?
1: Um, There's part of it. There's parts of it that I like really appreciate. I think I do see things differently and I like um, I like exploring those things. I like the obsessive, some of the obsessiveness that comes with it. I like that I sort of index a lot of stuff in my head and I can reference it later. Um, but there's also, the, the, it makes the anxiety side of things makes it hard to, to do other things like paperwork, like answer questions on a form, like I overthink things. Um, so I in some ways I don't feel like, it, I feel like I'm not well adapted to normal bureaucratic lifestyle Mm. Um, but I feel like I'm very creative and very spatially. I think I have a good spatial imagination and I like problem solving and deconstructing um, assumptions about the world, about things. Um, but it's definitely a struggle.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Interpersonally as well. But.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, yeah, there would be the ups and downs of, of of all of that. But being able to see the world in a different way than other people is a total, it can be an incredible gift as
1: well. Well, recently been chatting with a, an artist at our studio, August Studios. She has a show up at the moment and she's learned about her own autism through her child being diagnosed. And so then having these conversations, she's kind of pushing me to learn more about the potential of my own autism um, and hearing a lot of commonality, it's like, oh, right, this is, this is something that a lot of people in the world do. I'm not the only one that looks at geometry and patterns and lines in the world. Um, and it's kind of, an, it's interesting because it means that there's, you know, documentation and conversations and stuff out there in the world that I'd never been, like I never even told anybody about these things until I was well into my 20s. Mm. Um, it was just always felt outside, a little different than everybody else. So to hear that it's like a well-researched, understood thing, it's interesting.
0: Yeah. I imagine it makes one feel less alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered, um, you know, I have myself included friends who just love symmetry. Mm. And so even in my house, sometimes if there's something facing one way, I have to face it in a certain way Mm -hmm. um and I find that interesting because I don't think that I have OCD but it's interesting that I like things looking in a particular way but it's not I don't find it debilitating yeah um but even if you know if someone's coming to see me for a sound therapy session and their yoga mat isn't like quite lined up to my blanket like I'll if I can I'll adjust it a little bit
1: yeah I wonder if, if I like I'm doing it constantly and there's times when it's it's kind of a it kind of creates a safe it's like something it's like a um like a twitch like a fidgety kind of behavior like i do it to distract me when i'm anxious or something um and i wonder so i wonder if like does it cause you anxiety if you if it's crooked
0: no not really it it feels more like a preference like if it stayed crooked i'd be like oh it's kind of crooked um but i don't think i would get anxiety from
1: it does it are you satisfied? Does it bring you pleasure when you do it oh, correctly? Oh, that's an interesting
0: correction, uh, question. Um, yeah, a, a little bit. Just like, oh, that looks nice. Now yeah. it looks nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, like I don't get any anxiety from, from it if it's, if it's not. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't say it causes me anxiety either. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, if I'm like trying to follow the pattern like on this door in your studio, there's all these lines on the door, with leaded glass. If I'm like trying to find a, a path with those lines and I can't complete that path. It's called an Euler circuit. It's where you only cross lines one time. So you don't go through any one node, which is the intersection of two lines. If you don't go through any one node more than once, or sorry, um, overlap any one of those those lines, it's called an Euler circuit. It's mm. used for like garbage pickup. Like how do the trucks go through the city without repeating going over the same road or it's, an efficient, it's a mathematical equation that's made for finding efficient roots. And oh. so I, I follow these patterns, trying to find an Euler circuit, even when I know it's impossible. Um, but it does frustrate me if I can't complete it. Mm. Um, yeah. So then I kind of dwell on it. And I'll look at the same thing for extended periods of time.
0: Yeah. Oh, interesting.
1: So that's, that's probably the only time it causes, causes me anxiety. And otherwise, it's probably a way of dealing with anxiety.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. It's so, I, it's fascinating that you're, you're talking about this. And then I think of your career path and all of the different things that, that you've done. You're talking about your spatial awareness. Um, you went to school in New York and you did um, fine arts. So you're doing sculpture and painting. Um, and so you were there for a number of years and then you moved to Philly for a couple of years. And then you ended up in Vancouver because you were taking your master's in architecture mm-hmm. at UBC. Yes. I'd love to know more about this path that you were on with your schooling.
1: So in school, I really like the nature of the studio environment of like working around other people, having feedback, like sitting down and like talking to people about work and art. And it, it there wasn't, there's no commodification of it at the time. There's, it's, it's an ongoing process and I really liked the collaborative nature and I had a couple art shows outside of school and it kind of felt like a party scene. Like we we're all 20 something and it just felt like it wasn't about the work. It wasn't about collaboration. It was really just like a, an excuse for people to get together. Um, which at the time, you know, I was idealistic. I was like, Oh, it's about art. It's about ideas. Um, but I think we were just too young to, to, take that as seriously as I wanted to But I really wanted to work collaboratively and less about um, sort of the solo artist genius type, I suppose. So I, and then I started doing renovations on houses. I was a woodworker, a cabinet maker. So I started getting involved in like environmentally um, sustainable building practices, materials that got me interested in architecture. So then I and the idea of working collaboratively with specialists and a team of designers. And that all sounded more like what I was interested in from from my school experience. Um, So that's when I started pursuing the master's program. And I'd never been to to Vancouver, but it looked really good on Google. (laughs) Um, But I knew it rained a lot. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so I came to Vancouver. architecture school and then I started working after school I was doing design build projects and we did a lot of large-scale art fabrication for the Vancouver art gallery and renovating houses and I still really like doing both design work and physical like craft making itself. So my current endeavor is August Studios, which is a studio building for artists and designers. And I've designed it, I've physically built it, and there's a gallery so we have ongoing art shows and workshops and it's kind of an accumulation of all of my schooling and professional life and I'm pretty excited about it.
0: Yeah, and then you were also part of um, a project that won a prize, no? It was about... The missing Middle? Uh, uh, affordable. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so it worked... That's pretty huge.
1: Yeah, I worked in a, I worked in a small um, husband and wife architecture firm Hexity Hexy Architecture, and we entered um, a local competition called the Missing Middle, and it's the agenda was to find sort of prototypes or archetypes for bringing increased density to neighborhoods that are currently single-family houses without um, without aggregating a lot of other properties without assembling lots and building big towers that are always fought and resisted by by those neighborhoods so trying to find something that would fit into those neighborhoods would be relatively welcome but would increase the density and lower the cost of living in vancouver Um, so we entered this competition and i spent quite a bit of time on it and we wound up winning the competition which is nice and validating Um, and I think that conversation is really important for Vancouver and the people that are continuing it are doing good work. Um, yeah.
0: Putting the idea into actual practice, though, turned out to be a little bit more difficult. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's an ideal. It's you're you're putting ideas out there, but a lot of it is highly regulated through bylaws and zoning. And there has to be a political will to change those things to allow these types of buildings. Um, and economically, the the underlying what needs to change is non-market housing. You need the ability to increase density without just adding more profit to the market. Um, So our proposal was co-op conditional zoning where you can only upgrade the density on the property if you have non-profit, non-market housing, preferably um, a co-op model. Mm But the reality is you can't just jump into those projects. So this idea competition was, it's influential. um, And hopefully it's gonna, it will influence policy and influence politicians and get more popular support. But it's not something you can just jump into and start doing these projects.
0: Right, right. So when you say co-op, can you explain to listeners what that that means? And is it similar to how co-ops work in New York?
1: Um, in New York, I'm not sure, so the, tr- the, the, the traditional model of a co-op, in Canada, there were tens of thousands of co-ops being built um, for decades. It was a booming industry because the, the government invested in it. The government was giving long-term uh, uh, mortgages. They were um, really supporting co-ops generally speaking the idea is that the people who live in the building own the building as a member um, and then they contribute to the maintenance and the it's sort of like a strata, like a strata. of sorts but you're doing the physical work yourself um, you're agreeing to do lawn care and painting and just general maintenance and everybody contributes as a community and the co-ops that are long-standing in Vancouver do typically still work that way um, modern, there are contemporary co-ops, but they seem to be working quite differently. They hire outside maintenance companies, they hire, um, so it's, it's the, the profit, the, the costs are often quite at par with market rates. Mm. Um, the other thing with traditional co-ops is they have, designe- they, they won't turn people away if they can't afford market rates or there's a subsidized portion of the building. Um, so it allows for more diverse, occupants um, income levels Mm. but traditional but modern co-ops are seemingly more and more um corporatized
0: Mm. as so many things are Yeah. yeah yeah and what so you have august studios now and i've been to a couple of the art shows and it's awesome and um my friend Adele is mm-hmm. one of the small businesses that's that's in there right now. She just moved in.: Yeah, she just moved in. I'm curious to know what what made you want to start this space? Is it something that you saw was missing in Vancouver, and was it a sense of wanting to be around people you could soundboard and collaborate with?
1: Yes. Um, it started partly because, well, largely because my partner at the time, Man Villanueva was expanding her ceramic studio. So she had had a about 600 square foot studio and it was growing quickly. So we we found a, a building substantially bigger than what she needed at the time. So we had um, a couple thousand square feet of space that we could do other things with. So we could rent it out, we could do workshops and that got really interesting. I really liked the idea of workshops and sort of educating giving people the power to make their own stuff and be more critical of the built environment around them through learning how to make it themselves. Um, So I've always liked teaching. I've always liked showing people how to make things and figuring out how to make things myself. Um, And the idea of a community as well, for sure, like having a bunch of creative people around and having that sort of studio environment back from all the way back from undergrad um,
0: and you're creating now, too, with your furniture, uh, the chairs that um, you make out of wood, which are really, really contemporary and super minimal.
1: Yeah. So there's a woodworking, an intro to woodworking workshop, and we make a chair. The chair is designed by an Italian designer, Enzo Mari. Um, he was a Italian communist. He recently died from COVID, unfortunately. Mm. Um but he designed a series of furniture and published a manual on how to make the furniture yourself from lumber you can get at the hardware store. So it was very um, sort of DIY accessible, lowbrow, like it wasn't, didn't have to be perfect. It was very flexible in the, um, and yet it's a very comfortable chair. But he was, he so he never manufactured these things. There was never mass production. It was always, you could buy the you buy the little magazine, the little book, and it would instruct you on how to, how to build it or give you the dimensions of the pieces at least, and then you could figure it out from there. So I teach people how to use the basic tools, um, the more modern tools on how to build these chairs themselves, mm-hmm. and it's really fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they look really, really cool, yeah. for sure.
1: Yeah, I use them all the time. They're my yeah. cleaning chairs.
0: Are you doing, you're doing workshops now, aren't you?
1: Yeah, so I, I'll continue doing that workshop. Um, at the moment, we're doing a, a collage night. So one of the artists in our studio building is Lydia Cecilia, and she's a local collage artist. And she's running these collage nights, which are super fun. Everybody just get six, seven, eight people together and cut up paper, cut up magazines, and glue it together. And it's really just a couple hours to decompress and socialize. And it's not a consumer-based. Experience. It's a very sort of mindful experience, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that I want to continue doing in this space.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if um, making objects and say making these chairs, if it's very meditative for you.
1: Yeah, I mean the chairs. It's for me. I've been doing that type of work for so long. It's like there's muscle memory involved. It's very safe. It's very like it's it's just part of who I am. Like there's no. I, I just love ma- building things. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think, I think we need. There's a lot of terminology right now in marketing about self-care, and um, but it's often trying to sell a product, not an experience. And so to me, these workshops are often more about like an experience and taking control of some aspect of your life, learning how to be more capable, and but also appreciating the things that other people make. Like once you can look at the way. Once you understand how ceramics are made or a chair is built or collage is done, I think it just brings more appreciation and more critical eye to the stuff around you as well. Mm-hmm. Do you
0: think that, so the people who come to these workshops, are they mostly people who are quote unquote creative or are you getting people who are just like, I don't, I am not particularly. It's all creative. over the place. It's all over the place. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's some incredible, talented artists that have come and taken my chair workshop and been totally out of their comfort zone. Even mm. though they make other beautiful pieces in other medium, and then there's people who have absolutely no experience making anything whatsoever, and they don't they don't know the first things about it. But it's very it's a very um. Uh, there's not a lot of. It's very accessible. It's, mm. it's you can kind of do as much with it as you want.
0: Yeah, and I imagine it's really satisfying once you have a finished piece and you say, "Oh, like I made this." Yeah.
1: It's 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 cool.
0: <laughs> mhm. Yeah, seriously cool.
1: And people bring their own personal like to me, I'm very detail oriented. And there's a lot of small detail decisions that go into it like precision um, and some people are very very concerned with being precise and screwing things in just the right location and other people way more relaxed and way more casual and mm. you see it reflected in the pieces that they make
0: oh that's really interesting Yeah. Ah, oh, i'd wonder i should sign up for
1: one of your courses and see how
0: i how i how i do make a chair make a chair come to
1: collage night thursday yeah.
0: thursday okay i have a question about spaces and designing um Tell me about your approach to designing spaces. What happens in your head once you say, get a project? Um, how do you start looking at a space? And what are the following, I guess, steps or procedure that happens in your head or process? process? Right,
1: well, I think the most, the most important thing to me is the experience of the space and identifying features that are pre-existing that you really want to emphasize or make sure it doesn't get obstructed that somehow you can make sure you preserve whether it's a view or a certain material that's already there if you're renovating a space whether it's sort of a history of the building that's that you want might want to preserve um defining those things is my like the experience of walking through a building living in a space is top priority for sure like I sat on an art show the other day and somebody said that Architecture was art, and I don't think it's wrong. But I think ninety percent of architecture is very functional. It's very like we, we need we need to solve a problem. Your building is here to solve problems. It's not here to be expressive. It's not here to be art most of the time because it, there are real problems, and a simple, straightforward, practical building is very efficient and. It solves problems. Um, and I think 99% of architecture is that. And then there's a small sliver where you've got the right combination of designer and client and site where it's able to, everybody's interested in making something that's more than just solving a problem. Mm. Um, and I think those are the best, those are the projects that we think about when we think about good architecture. Um, they're relatively far and few between um
0: any projects you've been proud of that you've done where you look back and like and think yes i really really loved what i designed and created there
1: let's say more objects i think about more than spaces spaces when you're working in a firm you're i haven't always been on a project start to finish so i don't Feel the same ownership because you're often picking up somebody else's project or you're handing it off to another person so my level of involvement has always been kind of i don't feel the same ownership over those projects as i do over say august studios or furniture pieces or art pieces that i work on Um, And i think that's part of what's kind of leading me towards more towards the art world again is is that sense of like really having a connection to a project all the way through mm-hmm.
0: and when you're designing a space and designing an object is your process for doing that different oh yeah because mm-hmm.
1: you're you, you can you can be more absurd um because you don't have as real you don't have as many comp- uh, compounding and complex problems to solve at the same time so you can you know a table can be quite ridiculous or impractical in a lot of ways but you can live with it because you like it as a piece of art, or you appreciate that it changes your behavior a little bit. You you can accommodate those things, um, whereas in architecture we we expect it to be to to be very you know it needs to function properly. Mm-hmm. It can't leak. It can't you know be too delicate. It can't um, yeah. It's got to be accessible to a lot of different people. Whereas a piece of furniture or a piece of art it can embrace the absurdity a lot more.
0: Yeah. I yeah. think
1: having absurd experiences is good.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because it takes you out of your, your head a little bit. Yeah, and it mm-hmm. changes
1: the way that you perceive other things. You, can, you might become more, you know, you might, if, the more absurd experiences you have, the more you're going to see the world differently.
0: Right. So a couple more questions, um, and I really appreciate your time. What's uh, What's next for you? Any Anything new that that you can share that's on the horizon for you?
1: Um, I think I'm gonna take more time to be making my own. I wanna make a furniture line. I wanna make a $100 chair. I wanna make, I just wanna take more time to be making stuff on my own. Um, I've worked for other people a lot, whether it's a client or an architecture office or a furniture off, furniture studio. I want to put myself out there and see where that goes. Mm-hmm. But August is also really, um, it's definitely my love project right now, like, and the community that is building around it and having these experiences, these workshops that aren't, that are involving new people and making more connections, I like, that's exciting to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that community connection always feels really good. Um, my second to, oh, th- actually, third to, to last question. If you look back at your life, you know all of the things that have happened and all of the things that you've been through and with where you are right now, what are you most proud of in terms of how you've evolved as a human?
1: Um, my daughter, of course. Um, I mean seriously too like i say that because you know i'm a parent and you're supposed to be proud of your child but like having a child's really makes me self-conscious like it makes me aware of like oh why who am i who am i who is she going to be what is she going to get from me how do we um how are the things that happened to me as a child affected the way that i am as an adult um and so seeing her grow up and seeing her you know the way that she treats people and um has made me very aware of, you know, my responsibility to her. Um yeah, it's pretty pretty cool.
0: Mhm. Well, that was actually my second to last question is what what fascinates you most about how your daughter observes the world and operates within it?
1: Um I think it's f- seeing our commonality, but then also being like allowing her to bring her own her own interests and like wondering like how does how do we who, how do we become the people we are like where does when she brings something else that I know doesn't come from me or from her mother like where is that coming from like um yeah I mean so much of me is so much of how I think of myself is in relation to who my parents were and what they went through and um so yeah I just
0: love observing that about her
1: yeah it's mm-hmm. pretty it's pretty fun
0: my final question that I ask everyone, with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? <clears throat>
1: hmm. I mean, I guess curiosity and interest in beautiful things. I mean, I say things, but it doesn't have to be physical things, but I am very visual and object-oriented. Um, yeah, I just want people to look at Stuff I've made or stuff that they've made because of me, and just understand things a little bit better, I guess, and be less judgmental. I think that's part of why I like the absurdity. It's like you introduce something that's against their conventions, against rational thought, and then they come to accept it and find beauty in it and love it. And I think what being non-judgmental does, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: whether it's about experiences or about people or about opinions.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. Mark, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And yes, I look forward to more conversations in the future. Me too. Thank you. This is great. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes with Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.